All right, we'll turn to the second letter of Paul to Timothy and the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So why should I choose to preach on Paul's second letter to Timothy? More to the point, why should I ask you to listen to the messages of of this book for the next six months or so? Well, to me it seemed a rather obvious choice. In this epistle we find an old preacher writing to a young preacher with all the experiences that the older brother had known in his life. And now he shares with this younger man his assessment of the situation that they're now facing and this younger man is going to face in the future. And he expresses his encouragements and his exhortations to Timothy about the future. I also chose this letter because I love the Apostle Paul and his writings. I chose it also because it's not too long, though I wouldn't be surprised uh, not to complete preaching through it. Again, I thought it would be helpful for all of us to think about uh, this letter once again. It's quite different from the letter to the Romans. I would guess that the most loved letters in the Bible are two, both written by the Apostle Paul, the letter to the Philippians and this second letter to Timothy. They are full of doctrine, great doctrines I've read to you, but uh, also they're full of the heart and the affections, the personality of the Apostle. We discover Paul the believer, Paul under pressure, Paul handling loss, a disciple saved by grace. I've always loved this letter, and I'm sure you have too. So firstly, let me give you an introduction, an introductory word about this letter. There's a special pathos, because it's the last letter that Paul ever wrote. Imagine the interest and uh, the price asked to purchase the last letter that uh, King Charles I wrote the night before he was beheaded. Or the final letter that Napoleon wrote from St. Helena. They would be priceless documents, wouldn't they? Fascinating. Or the letter your late husband wrote you, the last letter, expressing his thanks to God that he'd met you and that you had agreed to marry him. And what happy years you had been given together. How precious to us are the last words of our loved ones. So in this letter we find a a Christian hope and it's expressed personally. The first person singular here. um, Chapter 4 and 6, 7 and 8. The time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me but also to all who've longed for his appearing. So here we are reading the words of a man on the borders of eternity. And he knows his days are numbered. People, Some people conjecture that uh, Paul was executed within days of writing Second Timothy. He knows the end is near. He's reached the final curtain. His work is done. Never again will he preach to great crowds. Never again will he stand on the Acropolis at Mars Hill and address the Areopagus. Never again will he preach in Jerusalem. Never again will he sail the high seas. Never visit the churches in Asia Minor. Never again preach in the streets of Corinth and build up a church there. These days are gone forever. Life is now resolving and 
focus in on, on a few basic elements that remain, making sure that the message is continued, that the gospel is going to be preached properly, faithfully. Added to the pathos of it being the last letter is the fact that he wrote this letter when he was in prison. He was actually in chains in Rome in verse 16. You see how he specifically mentions the chains. That's not a a metaphor or a symbol. It's a statement of his incarceration in Rome. The the, the, The hard facts are difficult to pin down. The chronology of what happened to him at the end goes something like this. He's in the storm. Uh, He arrives in in Rome. He's under house arrest. That is, he's able to receive guests and to preach to them. There are uh, two words in the last verse of Acts 28, which uh, one translation employees to describe his situation. They say about his ministry, with all openness, unhindered. In other words, there were no soldiers who were on guard at the door, who stopped everyone and searched everyone and asked what they were doing. Uh, People coming for counseling, people coming for an understanding of the gospel, under conviction. He had real liberty in house arrest when he first arrived, the months, the year or so. And uh, Rosaria Butterfield, in her, her second fine book about her pilgrimage to a stronger and wiser Christian faith, has given that second book, that autobiography, uh, that title from the last verse of, uh, of Acts, Openness Unhindered, she calls it. And so I must be open with all of you to bring to your minds and consciences and affections the truths that are found in in this letter. Not tone them down, not exaggerate them at all. I won't be hindered by your frowns, and I'll be helped by your smiles, of course. So initially, Paul had such a freedom. And then it seems he was released, and he resumed an itinerant ministry, uh, just as John Bunyan, for a while, was released from the uh, Bedford prison. And uh, it didn't last long for either man. And John and then Paul was rearrested. Perhaps he was arrested at Troas. And he was charged with a crime, perhaps by preaching that Jesus Christ was the supreme Lord. Then it was treason um, by the proconsuls there. Only... Only Caesar was the supreme lord. And so he was sent to prison for trial. And this is where we meet him then. Um, He shows us these things. There's uh, these uh, self-conscious references, for example, to his chains in verse 16. He's chained, that is, to a Roman soldier on a series of watches and That's his condition. He writes the letter. I suppose he gives it to Luke, and he tells Luke to deliver it to Timothy. The date of the composition would be uh, the mid-60s, something like 35 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're thinking about 1980. And you can remember well, uh, you older folk can remember well, 1980, and you were here, and you were young father, perhaps, and you were finding your way in a new job and so on. You see, you can remember those dates. Well, that's the gap, those 35 years between the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the conversion of Paul some months later, and where he is now. It was a time then for full reflection as to a grasp of the Christian faith and an understanding of it. So Paul, in all his maturity, is writing this little letter. And then there's another fast fact for me to tell you um, about the historical background then. For the first 25 years or so, there was trouble from the synagogues, but there wasn't trouble from Rome. 
And the gospel spread. They went to the synagogues. They were rejected. Churches were formed. They were converted Jews. And uh, it was tough for them in Jerusalem. But in the rest of the world, there were other things that converted Jews could do. And the gospel spread. Many Gentiles were converted. There were pockets of resistance. There were occasional persecutions. But there was, by and large, a warm reception given. Slaves and soldiers came. We know about that. It all changed in the year uh, 64, when uh, Nero, then that mad emperor, burned Rome and then looked for a scapegoat and he blamed it on the Christians. They were notable enough by this time and they were different enough and they were evangelistic and bold enough and preachy enough to be targeted as scapegoats to cover Nero's folly. And that, the doors were open then for a general persecution. Um, so Nero gave the crowds then that were restless because of his spendthrift ways and the taxes and so on. He gave them circuses and he gave them wild beasts and he gave them Christians being thrown to the wild beasts. It was a dangerous time to be a Christian. It was a sifting time. And the big theology of Paul's letters were now there. They were in circulation. They were needed. You needed doctrine like that to keep you. And the four Gospels were completed. I think they were all, all the New Testament was completed before AD 70 and the collapse of, of Jerusalem. And they gave backbone to the fledgling church. So the stony ground hearers drifted away. The, the Lord Jesus said that that would happen. So-called Christians didn't want to be so-called any longer. It was easier not to be involved with Jesus and his followers. And then false teachers arose then and saw a crowd and a movement and the uncertainty of early enthusiasm and just trod into those meetings uh, and became position, got positions of influence, those heretics then, who claimed to follow Christ, but denied major tenets of the Christian faith, like resurrection of the body. And a surprising number of the early Christians were taken up with this, and uh, they went away. And Paul, in his prison cell, heard of these developments and grieved over them, and he addresses them. He addresses them particularly in the third and fourth chapters of this letter. And he warns Timothy about the last days um, uh, to be characterized, as they have been for 2,000 years, by perilous times. And he reaffirms the centrality of the gospel. Paul had been virtually abandoned in Rome. Uh, Christians were being thrown to the lions and they were meeting secretly. It was a dangerous thing to be known to be a friend, a disciple of um, the mega-Christian, the most famous Christian in the world, the Apostle Paul. And so few people visited him. You see this in verses 15 and 17, 15, 16, 17. You know that everyone, everyone, not everyone, yes, everyone in the province of Asia, that's... Turkey today has deserted me, including what must be two of the leading men, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Ah, but there's some who weren't. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and wasn't ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. So here's Onesiphorus. Couldn't get instructions. What, what prison then is? Where, where is Paul? Tell me, you can tell me that. Which of the many prisons is, is Paul in? And so he had to search. He got no help because everyone was afraid until he found the apostle. It was probably in the Marmotime prison. It was a damp underground cell with a single hole in the ceiling for light and for air. And shivering then, the old man, he asks uh, Timothy, bring the warm cloak he left at Troas. 
and he lacks any mental stimulation from the yokel uh, soldiers that are chained to him, bored stiff. And he says, bring some of the books that I left at Tross. Chapter 4 and verse 13. Only Luke is with me. Chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke. Only Luke is with this lovable man. But for Paul and for every Christian, whatever the pressures, it's always too soon to quit. So then let's look at this man. Okay, that's the introduction to the letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We are considering one of the greatest intellects this world has ever seen. Why do I feel that in all the pulpits of Cardiganshire there are very few other pulpits which expound and explain and apply the message of the Apostle Paul to a congregation. His influence on human history, on education, on philosophy, on medical ethics, on family life, on morals, on the Christian church, was immeasurable. His letters, his writings, have transformed the lives of millions and millions of people for the last 2,000 years, even as I'm speaking today. Hundreds of people are being converted this very moment in Africa and Asia and in the Americas and Australia and the islands of the seas by hearing messages from his letters. Now it's going on. He's a colossus, the former a Hindu who worked with uh, Keith Underhill for many years, Sukesh Pabari, um, sat and had a meal with him in Kenya some years ago, and he told me how he was converted. He, he read Paul's letter to the Romans. It was just God's word for him, and he became a Christian. Well, imagine Paul rings your doorbell. You go to the door and wonder who will be there and here's this little man and he introduces himself excuse me for bothering you I'm, uh, my name is Paul you wouldn't have looked twice at him if you were walking down Great Darkett Street his enemy said about him his bodily presence is weak so he was no John Wayne coming into a saloon and everyone stops and looks around to see who's coming His speech is contemptible, they said. He wasn't a great orator like Peter was. Anyone less like the actor Brian Blessed, you could hardly imagine. He wasn't larger than life. He wasn't loud. He wasn't bombastic. He wasn't intense. He spoke tenderly and uncleverly. He knew his own heart. He was straight with people and as you talked to him on the doorstep before you um, invited him in, you felt he was a very loving man. He had faith and he had hope, but particularly he had love, and that was the greatest characteristic of the Apostle Paul. And then he speaks to you, and then he says that he's been sent to you by God. Oh, It wasn't just his decision to come and speak to you. But the one true and living God had commissioned him to be a a preacher to Gentile people, like all of us are. The word apostle means a sent one. And God had sent the apostle Paul. It would have been more than enough, surely, that he'd come on his own initiative and he'd shared with you something of his life and his beliefs and he was speaking personally to you. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? One of the great men of the world had come to you. But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, had had sent him to you 
But these things don't happen by chance. That the Lord had sent him to address you. You see, that's how he begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So this letter to Timothy doesn't come from an old friend, like I write to young men. Uh, An older man, an experienced pastor. It comes from an apostle, a plenipotentiary, a representative officially of Jesus Christ and that's why we're studying it because God speaks to us through these letters in the New Testament you understand he wasn't um, an apostle by personal choice when he was a schoolboy, and the teacher looked at them one day and the teacher asked them now what boys what do you want to be when you grow up and one boy said a soldier Another boy, I want to join daddy and be a fisherman. And another boy said, I want to be a camel driver. Paul didn't say, I want to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't make that choice by his will. No one could choose that career. To be an apostle of Jesus Christ, two things are necessary. First, you have to be a witness of the risen, resurrected Son of God. That's exactly what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He didn't have a vision of Jesus. He he met the risen, living Jesus Christ. He came. He came from heaven and he confronted Paul. But that's one thing. And the second thing that you needed was to be commissioned by Jesus Christ, given this calling And so uh, Acts 26, 16 and 17 tell us then what he said to Paul on Damascus Damascus Road. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me. And I will show you. And what I will show you, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles I am sending you to them to us Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that's what made Paul an apostle not I want to be religious I want to become a a clergyman but that he had a sight he'd met the risen, living Jesus Christ. Am I not apostle? Have I not seen Christ? He says. And then a divine commission was given to him to be his servant and witness. That's what made him apostle. There were certain gifts in the New Testament that were only given at the time of the apostles. Um, uh, um, Apostles and prophets were particularly so. And the signs that went with an apostle and then they, they terminated and there were pastors and preachers and deacons and elders for the rest of the time. Now I think it's very important for us to grasp what the relationship between the apostle Paul and Jesus Christ was. What was the glue? What, what were the dimensions, the texture of this relationship? And I want you to see that it was a relationship of love. Son of God had loved Paul before the foundation of the world. And he continued to love him during his incarnate life when he lived a life of wonderful righteousness. And he continued to love him when he hung on the cross in the darkness, in the anathema, under the wrath of God towards sin. And because he loved Paul, he set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem and he gave himself in Paul's place and in my place and in you who are Christians you were place made sacrifice he reconciled God to us we were scum and our righteousnesses were as filthy rags so Jesus loved Paul before the foundation of the world he loved him and continued and was loving him. That's why he came to the Damascus Road, because he loved him. 
like you waiting for a date to see somebody you love and you hung around and you meet with them at the arranged time and this was the appointed time and Paul then loved him in return that was the secret of Paul's wonderful character that's why he was uh, patient and kind not jealous not self-seeking not easily angered he didn't keep a record of wrongs he never delighted in evil but he rejoiced in the truth he was always protecting and always trusting and always hoping and always persevering why did he live like that why does anyone live like that well because you love Jesus Christ and you don't want to grieve Jesus Christ by living in a a vain, self-centered, and unproud way. So they were bound together in love. Jesus loved Paul, and Paul loved Jesus. Paul loved Jesus because he, Jesus, loved him first. So you can always trust anything that Paul will say because he doesn't want to offend the Jesus he loves. Um. It all has a stamp of Jesus Christ on it. The Savior said, if they hear you, Paul, they will be hearing me. And if they reject you, they will be also rejecting me. So when we are studying this letter, we are studying what the Lord Jesus wants us to hear. He's speaking to us now. Because we are studying the thinking of this great apostle, but we are also studying the spirit of Christ that was in him that made him write these things. You cannot put a sheet of Indian paper between the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ, between their theology, because every thought of Paul was chained to Jesus Christ, every thought without exception. So Paul had this authority then to speak to Paul and instruct him. To tell him how to live, how to evangelize, how to pastor, how to teach people, what errors to avoid, what truths he had to maintain. And although Paul um, has taught all this to Timothy already, and he knows it all yet, uh, and he believes it with all his heart, he wants to know it again. Those who know these things best are hungering and thirsting to hear them, like the rest of the people who for whom it's fresh and new. So he's writing about his apostleship, and uh, he starts, Paul, an apostle? Well, I never write a letter to to people and say, I'm writing now as the minister of Alfred, but I write this to friends. But Paul did, because the letter would become public. And Timothy had a congregation. And he, Paul, wanted to endorse what Timothy was telling them. And that they ought to heed and listen to the words of Timothy. Because behind Timothy was Paul. And behind Paul was the Lord Jesus. And behind the Lord Jesus was God. Paul taught, Timothy taught them as he did because of, he was under the authority of Paul. For Timothy, Paul could say nothing wrong. For Paul, Jesus could say nothing wrong. And that's the stance that we take um, as a congregation. So, um, you may come to Jesus Christ, you may come tonight to Jesus Christ, but whenever you come to Jesus Christ, you can only come on his terms. And his terms are, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're not naturally meek. And we need meekly to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our own ideas. You, you've been muddled by bad ministry and uh, you've, you read it in the paper. You saw it on television, you picked up lots of funny ideas. Your teachers in school had lots of funny ideas. And I'm saying you, you can find out what's true by 
just reading quietly the Gospels of Jesus Christ and the letters of Peter and Paul and Jude and James and others. Learn of me. There's no real Christianity. There are lots of brands and twists of Christianity in the professing church. But we're going back to the fountainhead. We're going back to this old letter written by, by Paul. A third thing I want to say to you is that Paul's apostolic mission was for this end to bring to the world the promise of life in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's mission. To bring to the world, to bring to Wales, Africa, Asia, Ethiopia, the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. All right? There's this very compressed and compact phrase. I want to undo it for you now. Um, In this first verse, he'd become an apostle according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's a lovely phrase. Not easy. What it means is this. Paul is saying something like this. I was sent by God to be an apostle to bring the message of Christianity, especially to the Gentiles, because once long ago, about 2,000 years before I was born, God made a covenant promise to Abraham. And in that promise to Abraham, he said the time would come when all the nations of the world would be blessed by someone in his line, one of his descendants, one of his seed, Christ, the Messiah. People in Wales, 4,000 years after the time Abram was in the world, would get together on a Sunday and they would sing the God of Abram praise. Distant Gentiles, millions of them, would have life, not death. Eternal life, not eternal death. God had made a solemn promise of this life coming to the nations when he met with Abraham. You remember the, the, the scene there, the ceremony by which God inaugurated the covenant of grace with Abraham. He made Abram sacrificed several animals, birds, sheep, dismember their bodies and lay them down in great lines, half on one side and half on the other on a mountainside. And when he done that, the vultures spotted carrion and and they flew and, and Abram had to drive the vultures away. And then you remember what happened? God made a great sleep come upon Abram. He became comatose. He could see and hear everything, but he couldn't move a muscle. And then Jehovah came. Abram watching this. And Jehovah came in the form of a a furnace. A huge glowing firepot. And it moved, uh, hovered, suspended in the air, up and down, between these two lines of carcass. God was saying, if I fail to keep my word, if I fail to provide life for the nations of the world, salvation, forgiveness, everlasting life, through a descendant of yours, then let that judgment fall on me that has fallen upon these animals that we've sacrificed Abram did nothing God didn't say now what are you going to do he could do nothing God made that absolutely clear he could simply spectate this covenant initiation in awe Paul tells us in this first verse that he was caught up in this covenantal promise when God said to him on the Damascus road I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God. He spoke those words to him. That he would have a lifelong ministry to Gentiles. And he describes these Gentiles in Romans chapter 1. The filthiness of their lives. The degradation to which they without God had fallen. But they would receive life. Through trusting in Jesus Christ as their saviour. For hearing the gospel message that Paul would preach to them. And they were going to receive then the new heavens and the new earth. We enjoy that life now, don't we? We, we? we know new life as Christians. We're not as we used to be. We've got resources that the world knows nothing about. We have graces that the world knows nothing about. And when we die, we're not going to perish. We're going to have everlasting life. Because we're joined to Jesus Christ. And the body's going to be where the head is. And the head is at the right hand of God. It all goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham that now grace is going to go to the nations of the world. And though that's why he was called to be an apostle, that was the reason for it. Um, The promise of life in Christ Jesus. That's the great Pauline phrase of union with Jesus Christ, of being plugged into Jesus Christ, of being joined to him, uh, like a husband and wife are joined together and produce children, like um, a vine branch is, is in the vine and produces the fruit of the vine. We're in Christ Jesus. <laughs> that's, that, that's made all the difference. Our union with him, the life we have uh, from him. Let me illustrate it like that. You think of the difference now. Say you've got one of these turbines now, wind turbines producing electricity. Your house is dependent on one. It's great um, when the wind blows. But if we're in the doldrums, if there's no wind for days, then the power goes and the food is rotting in the refrigerator and you can't cook. But if you belong to the national grid... And generally, I know it's not a perfect illustration, but generally you're okay, aren't you? You're not dependent on the turbine and the windmill going round and round to generate your electricity. Sometimes we feel religious. Sometimes I feel religious. Sometimes I feel like a minister. Um, Sometimes I feel rotten. Sometimes I'm virtually on the floor in anger with myself and despondency I don't feel like a Christian at all but I'm still joined to Jesus Christ I can't say in days when uh, I don't feel particularly religious or I can get away with behaving just any way I want to behave I can't do it because I'm still joined to Jesus Christ I still have him in me and I'm in him and we are one and there's no excuse for me behaving in a sub-Christian way at all because as Paul was uh, called to be apostle by the will of God through the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus he's promised you life, you have life you've got life that's heavenly and life that's abundant and new life that he's given you, there's no excuse for you behaving in an intemperate and lustful and harsh and unkind way Last thing, then there's Timothy. That's okay, we're we're not too long here. Timothy, then, the last thing I want to speak to you about. He was the recipient of this letter, wasn't he? To Timothy, verse 2, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Timothy, he was a representative of the coming generation, then, in the post-apostolic period. When the apostles went, and it was different. They were then dependent on the word. The word that the apostles had written, the gospels and the letters. And um, how can they believe without the preaching of the word of God? Now, Paul had strong affection for him. 
I can understand that. I love young free grace preachers. I love to meet them. We have a little fraternal and there are young men there. I'm, I'm glad to hear of the encouragements that they get. But Paul loved Timothy not because of his office, not because he was a preacher. But he loved him. He loved this person. And he loved his family. He knew of Timothy's biography. He knew his uh, upbringing quite intimately. His mother was named Eunice. And his grandmother was named Lois. Now there's only one young preacher in all the world whose grandmother's name I know. Paul knew all about Timothy's background. Timothy was half Gentile. His father was Greek and his mother was a a Jewess. He'd been raised in a pagan town, a non-Jewish town, Lystra, where Paul had been stoned so severely that when they grew weary of throwing rocks at him and he lay there just broken and inert, they thought he was dead. Timothy was probably converted under Paul's ministry. We know he was ordained. He, the elders and, and Paul laid hands on him at his ordination. He was a young man. He's probably in his 30s then. Um, because uh, we're told in chapter 2 and verse 22, flee youthful passions, he tells him. Well, every student here knows youthful passions. And he was a little timid. Because Paul tells him in verse 7, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, no. And he was a man of rather fragile constitution because Paul says, you take a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your many weaknesses. So um, he wasn't like C.T. Studd. He wasn't like David Livingstone. He wasn't like William Carey. He wasn't even like Keith Underhill. A man of extraordinary stamina. And faithfulness. So Paul knew him well and loved him dearly. My dear son, he says. And that must have been a great encouragement to have been greeted warmly by the apostle. The, the Greek word is agape. You know the great word for love. My beloved son. And he's speaking of uh, his, his love for his son in the faith. Oh, I wish... There was a great baptism of love on the gospel church in, in our day. And I just admire the way the apostle is never slow to speak of his love or show his love to his fellow workers, or the members of the congregation, the last chapter in the letters of the Romans, all those 30-odd names that he mentions. Now, that's not optional. Uh, you can't Excuse yourself for not loving other Christians like that. The gospel changes our hearts. The gospel uh, takes naturally private and cool-hearted men and women. And it makes them warmly affectionate. It makes those who've been hurt by bad relationships in the past able to love again. It lifts up those that have been abused so that they can live in a loving, stable marriage for 50 years. That love comes because the king of love reigns in our hearts. And the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, shows itself in our relationships. We are to love one another with pure hearts fervently. It's not just morally we love one another. Ethically we love one another, which we should. But there's a stirring of our affections. I think it's of incalculable value the way that Paul speaks of his affection all through this letter to Timothy. You know there are Christians who feel they can't handle a loving relationship without falling into some sin or other. There are Christians who feel if they give themselves in affection to somebody they're going to get hurt 
and they're going to hurt that person in turn. Well, I think, I think you, can, you can express affection. I think going to the Christian bookshop and getting a, a birthday card or a Christmas card and just writing a little note with, with warm affection, with love and appreciation. You know. You say it. Don't use my words, but you, you say. It, it just means an awful lot. And uh, we who get those cards, we, we don't say thank you as, as we should, but we do appreciate. We, we are to show our love, like Paul shows his love for Timothy here. You see, when you love someone, you make yourself vulnerable. You love anyone and your heart will be hurt, even tried and tested and broken, perhaps. And if you want to avoid that, then you've got to always be in control, haven't you? Don't love someone. You, you put your heart in a room and you close the door and you lock it. And you have the key and you don't let anyone in that room except you. And you have the key to it. You keep it there in the dark in that airless place of selfishness, in that room where it is static and motionless, it won't be broken because no one enters that place. It will be impenetrable and stillborn. You will be perennially Mr. Cool and that room is the one place you feel safe. When you're all alone, when you're free from the dangers of loving someone and opening your heart to them. I'm, I'm trying to say to you that in all real love there is suffering. How heartbroken Timothy must have been when Paul was executed so brutally. But in his grief he would never say, I wish I'd never met him. He'd never say that because of all that he'd learned from the loving relationship he had with him. When you accept someone's love, you've got to offer it to God. You've got to throw away your defenses, and you've got to love someone more than you love yourself. God doesn't despise a broken heart. And when your heart is enriched by receiving love and loving in return, then what a new dimension comes into your life. What a rich dimension comes into your life. Um, are some of you finding the cost of loving another person too great a price to pay? Well, God is love. And you are made in the image of God. And you are a child of God. You have access to an indwelling saviour. And your model is Calvary, isn't it? That's the model. Let this mind be in you. And Philippians 2 and all that he did. He gave himself and took the form of a servant. And humbled himself to the death of the cross. That's, that's the model. This mind this attitude must be in you. Jesus Christ desperately in love with his people. Jesus Christ going to the cross for his people. Shedding his blood for them. Dying in their place. And, and that love then helps us to, to love one another. When Paul loved Timothy, he was showing that he was a real disciple of Jesus Christ. And that must have meant Timothy felt so unworthy. He doesn't know me. <laughs> Timothy must have. If, if Paul knew me and the sort of lazy man I am and the failures I am and I can't live like him and he is so great and I'm such an insignificant person, he would have said to himself, and how can I love him like he loves me? And then Paul tells us, doesn't he? He tells Timothy and he tells us and I'm going to tell you. Because he says the next words, 
grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Think of it. Grace would be wonderful. God's omnipotence redeeming us, forgiving us, working in us, changing us. Mercy that pardons the greatest sins on all our sins. And peace, the peace of our hearts, the peace with God that we have. And these three great virtues and graces that come and reach us, ordinary folk like ourselves. In other words, God knows it's difficult in 2015 to live a Christian life. It really is tough. The, the pressures you're under and the needs you have and the coldness of your own heart and your inadequacies and your falls. and So often you think, am I really a Christian? I'm going to begin to be a Christian, maybe. And God's answer is, he gives us, he gives us, and gives us, and gives us, and again, and again, and more and more. He gives us grace, and he gives us mercy, and he gives us peace. So that the wrath of a sin-hating God with me can have nothing to do. And I can do all things through Christ who helps me. I can love. I can love. I can do it. I can do it by Jesus Christ. There's no mountain I can't climb. There's no river I can't cross. There's no temptation I can't overcome. There's no burden I can't bear. I can do it. I can do it because grace and mercy and peace are coming to me. In Christ Jesus. They're coming to me day by day. And that's why Paul loved Timothy and loved the people of God. And why we have such affection for one another and how we are enabled then to be a loving congregation. Amen. Lord, bless your word to us tonight and oh, make this book come alive and may the mind of the Apostle Paul be a model for us and may the mind that was in Christ Jesus be also in us. And the great humbling, the taking of the form of a servant and the humbling of himself to death, even the death of the cross. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we'll humble ourselves like that and uh, that we'll be helped in the Christian life to live as we should, <laughs> a better life, a higher life, a life that's whose only explanation is Jesus Christ lives in us. His only explanation is grace from heaven, mercy from heaven, peace from heaven has been given to us freely, bought for us by Jesus' obedience even to death. Grant that, we pray. The youngest Christian here, the oldest Christian, we all need it. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.